fact, in the countries of the Western Balkans, as was mentioned, Europe is performed and portrayed as the pleasant world. Uh, and it is in these countries where you understand the way how Europe wants to be perceived, how Europe wants to be remembered, and how Europe is trying to make a bit of a conservation of its image for, for the rest of the times. This is Opinion Peace Podcast, and my name is Lajana Lazic. Over the last two, two and a half decades, scholars have produced a vast number and variety of works that grappled with international and especially European, or EU rather, interventions in the Western Balkans in the spheres of state and peace building, post-war reconstruction and reconciliation, EU enlargement, and Europeanization. A simple Google search based on any of the terms I've just mentioned would trick you into wondering what could have possibly been left unasked in this area of academic inquiry. My today's guest on the Opinion Peace podcast is Dr. Yossa Musliu from the Free University in Brussels, who points out that most of this vast literature, however, prioritizes structures, institutions, methodical processes, EU enlargement, acquis communautaire, etc., but doesn't delve much into broader sociological aspects of Europeanization. That is why Vyosa's new book, Europeanization and State Building as Everyday Practices, Performing Europe in the Western Balkans, analyzes Europeanization and processes related to Europeanization through everyday mundane acts, practices, and events that are performed across four Western Balkan countries, Kosovo, Bosnia-Herzegovina, North Macedonia, and Albania. The book is forthcoming in May with Routledge Studies in, in Intervention and State Building. In this episode with Dr. Vyosa Musliu, you will learn about what gets revealed when we look at Europeanization through the lens of everyday performativity, how Europe is performed, staged, simulated, and even fetishized at times in the Western Balkans, what is the purpose and who is the audience for these performative acts and dances, who and what gets uttered, silenced, and even erased because they do not fit these imaginings of future in Europe and Europeanness. And now, without further ado, Dr. Vyosa Musliu. Assistant Professor of International Relations at the Free University of Brussels. And we are here to talk about uh, Vyosa's newest book, Europeanization and State Building as Everyday Practices, Performing Europe in the Western Balkans. So Vyosa, welcome. And thank you for having me. I'm happy to have you here. How about we start from, from the beginning, right? We start from the title. What is the book about? There has been a lot of written about uh, European uh, EU integration or EU enlargement in the Western Balkans. What's, what gets revealed if we use performativity in every day as lens to look at those processes? Well, again, thank you very much for having me. It's great to be on the podcast with you. Um, and it will be the first time for me to talk about the book, which is forthcoming actually in, in May. And the book is primarily about uh, looking and understanding Europeanization and processes related to Europeanization through everyday acts, everyday practices across uh, several countries of the Western Balkans, uh, Bosnia, Herzegovina, Albania, North Macedonia, and Kosovo. I basically look at how everyday events, mundane events, what are 
maybe otherwise considered as banal events probably uh, can tell us something more and something more comprehensive about processes of Europeanization. And to be honest, when I when I came, like when I was starting to work with, with the idea of the book, as you said, there is there has been a lot written on Europeanization of the Western Balkans. It's one of those uh, very much researched, problematized, uh, published academic work as well. So uh, quite, I mean, quite frankly, it's like why yet another book, you know, what could have possibly left untapped in that, in that direction. And my impression looking at the literature and having worked with that literature over the past 10 years is that the overwhelming majority of that literature, much like the overwhelming majority of the literature on European studies in general, tends to prioritize structures and institutions, um, methodical processes of Europeanization, EU enlargement, EU integration processes, the acquis communitaire, and, and it does not look much into what happens in the, let's say, more broader sociological aspects of Europeanization, you know, like the way how um, school kids in North Macedonia or in Albania learn about Europe and Europeanization in, in school curricula, or the way how entire city spaces in the region have been changed, modified, and rendered somewhat invisible so that they could apply and imagine European aesthetics, or like the way how queer rights are spoken in light of framework of Europeanization, the way how news is produced in local media in light of Europeanization. And I thought all of these processes have somewhat been overlooked, if not uh, bluntly ignored, actually. And uh, that's that's where the book comes in. It tries to give uh, a bit of a more um, maybe sociological and anthropological perspective, because I draw a lot on uh, theories and methods uh, coming from anthropology to essentially understand Europeanization as a process that happens beyond institutions in Brussels and political elites in the capital of, the, of the, these countries and beyond speeches of the parliamentarians and things like that, but something that actually tries to change social entire social fabrics of the populations of countries in the region. That's that's what the book is more or less all about. Right. And you using in particular two important lenses, uh, which you already mentioned, which is performativity and everyday or everydayness. Or you draw on Austin, on Derrida and Butler. So what do you mean by performativity and, and, and these performative acts in every day and how do they play in this in this whole process play out um so indeed when i when i study processes of europeanization and everyday events so uh europe day celebrations or like maybe school concerts or cycling tours mm -hmm. i try to look at them as um uh sets of performances that try to showcase a particular version and a vision of Europe. And that's why I use the concept of performativity. I actually rework the concept. I go back to initially to Austin and then Derrida's reworking on, of Austin's performativity and then Butler's reworking of Derrida's performativity. And I take all of that together and by looking into what is happening across countries and populations of the Western Balkans, I try to uh, give forward performativity as, a, as an idea to look at 
processes such as Europeanization by understanding it as not necessarily as performance. So it's not just something that is staged, well curated, and it appears out there, but it's it should be understood as, as something that is embodied and staged uh, of subject acts of subject making, which then address can address relations of, of power. So in a way, performative acts in the book are understood in two uh, forms. For instance, first concepts, Europe or processes of Europeanization, rather than existing just in and of themselves as something that is out there beyond dispute, uh, are actually co-constitutive of a set of power relations, discourses, materialities, infrastructures of market. And as such, these performative acts, so these acts of something that is embodied, internalized, and staged all at the same time, do not just exist in a space, but actually they articulate and make that, that particular space. And I think the chapter that talks on Bosnia-Herzegovina particularly shows this type of the making of a space into, into a European space. And similarly, by going when I go to the everyday, I again look for inspiration to something that anthropologists have been doing very successfully, uh, much more successfully than us in political science and IR, actually, is to uh, just look how day-to-day -day interactions, events, um, are shaped by these new sets of relations of powers, by this new, uh, newly engineered spaces, newly created spaces of what constitutes European and what, what not, and what is that non-European space then rendered to, and how is that incorporated or abruptly left out from the making of, uh, of our spaces. More concretely, when I look at Euro, uh, uh, everyday acts, I look, for instance, at um, the way how in Kosovo's public dis discourse, it is spoken about um, Islam and Islamic radicalization, the way how these two are conflated and are given as actually derivative of one another almost, uh, how civil society actors, also public intellectuals, talk about in their everyday discourses, how they talk about queer rights, LGBT rights, uh, forms of feminism, for, forms of empowerment, and how Europeanization features into these everyday speech acts of these uh, subjects that I look at. Similarly, I look how entire city spaces in Tirana and Skopje have been, like both of these cities have undergone massive changes over the past 10 years, and a lot of these changes have been conflated problematically justified and legitimized through processes of Europeanization or simply through imaginations of what Europe is, of what European aesthetics are, of what Western aesthetics are, and how in the process entire uh, sets or entire heritages of, let's say, uh, socialist architecture, uh, communist architecture, uh, multi-ethnic architecture and heritage have been sidelined to make room for what appeared to be this European vision of uh, cities. And uh, along the same lines, I do, uh, I do that exercise by tracing everyday acts in Bosnia and Herzegovina, and I look how primarily European technocrats, together with local Bosnian uh, civil society, have created certain types of European activities in certain European spaces, and they have created in turn some European subjects, 
who then carry out these European activities designated in certain European spaces, right? Mm -hmm. And these aspects of how Europe penetrates so um, overwhelmingly across uh, sociological and social processes and ideational processes, I think to a large extent has not been yet untapped when it comes to EU's uh, otherwise uh, comprehensive involvement in, in, in our region. Absolutely, absolutely. And through these performative acts, we, as you already mentioned very nicely, we have a creation of, of spaces and places, creation of activities, creation of, of subjects, right? And through all those, a certain, certain image or certain idea of, of Europe, of being European, of Europeaness uh, is, is imagined, reproduced, and also reified. But at the same time, we also have production, uh, reimagination or reification of, of the Western Balkan countries. And in those processes of, of production, reproduction, and reification of these images and imaginings, the actors who participate in them are as, as local uh, actors, but also the European technocrats. And they do reproduce images about each other. They mirror each other. They, there is a certain kind of a dance that is going on right there. Yeah. Right? Yeah. That, that whole dance, like who's, who's the audience for that dance? Like uh, what, what is the purpose of this, this, this whole yeah. performativity, right? What, what is it for? Well, that's... Um... So certainly there is there is a, a set of dances, so like a meta dance that, that is going on, because clearly this a lot of these acts are um, are legitimized and at the same time contested or internalized as something that countries in the region should do. So they are legitimized by the local elite. And at the same time, they are questioned by certain segments of civil society within the countries of the region. Um, it is interesting for me that in all of this dance, so you have the, the European technocrats or those who are uh, delegated to represent the European Union in the countries of the region. Um, they also partake as probably uh, the lead dancers. And if they are not dancing, I mean, if they are not the lead dancers when the party is taking place, they have certainly done the choreography of it. So even if the locals are dancing on their own, the choreography has been designed most probably in Brussels, if not in Brussels, in an EU delegation office in Sarajevo, in Pristina, or somewhere else, right? So, and that ability of the EU to disentangle itself, right? So to, to portray itself as, no, this is actually an entirely, you know, local enterprise, you know, we're, we're not even partaking in it. That ability to... Um, uh, to detach itself from a very powerful position is, uh, is I think, one of the you know, one of the quintessential characteristics of the EU. Because unlike any other power, it has this ability to render itself invisible. So when you go to pride parades in Pristina, when you see like an entire crowd of young people in an otherwise very young population, right? It is, and you see no police patrolling anywhere, no, no uniforms, no state uniforms guaranteeing any sort of security there. And all goes normal, right? If you are just an outsider that has landed out of curiosity, you will be overwhelmed and you will be very impressed, right? Mm -hmm. That is not the entire story. What I find out in the chapter is that this is very well choreographed, right? This is a very well curated performance. 
So it is it is a common understanding between the activists and the, for instance, and the police officers that the police officers will patrol uh, without any uniforms again to create this idea that this is all flowing very naturally. And it is not surprising that at the at the forefront of the of the crowd of people marching on the Pride Parade, on the march itself, whatever it, uh, it was called also in the, in the previous years, you have usually the Prime Minister, the President, Minister of European Integration, together with the international stakeholders. In the region, ambassadors of the US, the UK, the Netherlands, you are just as powerful figures as the Prime Minister and the Minister of European Integration. So together with heads of states, also of these European and Western European countries partaking in the, in the parade. Again, you understand it there and then that it is a very well curated performance. Now, up until here, there's nothing strange, right? Especially in cases like Kosovo, Bosnia, Herzegovina, but also in Albania and in North Macedonia, the EU is, uh, is the biggest donor, right? It's the biggest financial donor when you think about it. Um, it has an enlargement process in place. Um, it has been present in the region since then. It's not just through enlargement, but through post-conflict reconstruction, peace talks, uh, now the dialogue between Kosovo and Serbia. So there is a clear political agenda going on. Hence, it's not surprising that they would be so much involved also in these processes. However, when you look, and this is hopefully to address your question, who is the who is the audience? This is where it gets a bit more complicated because it turns out that the, the performance that the locals are doing in Sarajevo or um, in Yaitse or in Skopje or in Pristina it is not the local populations of these, mm -hmm. of these communities, of these towns. It is, again, the European stakeholders financing and legitimizing these acts are, in turn, the primary addressee of these dances, of these performances, right? So, yeah, it's just a one-way street of communication. Mm -hmm. Now, I don't know to what extent this is used to justify certain interventions, how to you know, prolong certain missions, whether this is used to justify to European taxpayers what is happening in the region. But more often than not, I find out that the primary addressee is the Western European actors themselves. It is not so much about the populations or the communities on the grounds are, are taking place. Yeah, that was that was a fascinating part in the. I mean, one of the fascinating parts in the in the book because you you do say how the it's, at times it becomes very difficult to to disentangle performativity from from staging and from simulating, right? Uh, and how in that whole process, Europe re-envisioned itself. How did you say reinvents itself as a as a postmodernist structure? But at the same time, we also have uh, reification. Uh, and reimagination of the Western Balkans and, and their societies, right? Because through recreation of these places, spaces, subjects, and activities, we have a creation of certain images that are sent towards the EU, but also in a certain way, it is educating citizens how to be proper Europeans, right? So a certain image of Europe is presented from the Western Balkans as well. And you use this yeah. uh, a very 
interesting formulation for explaining that. You, among other things, you say that the, the picture of Europe that is projected from the Western Balkans is this homogenous pleasant well. So I would yes. like to ask you a bit more about this uh, pleasant well. Uh, if you could tell us what kind of pleasant well we are talking about and for whom there is no place in the pleasant well. Well, yeah, I think this is one of the one of the arguments I make in the conclusion, and and where I say that especially over the past twenty years, um, the European Union or what the European Union represents for the wider Europe has not exactly been on the most positive spotlight. Right, we have had uh, dire consequences because of the financial crisis, the sovereign debt crisis, the way how austerity measures have been implemented across Europe showed you know, a deep lack of solidarity and like major flaws in the way how economics and finances across the union are organized. We have had successive refugee and migrant crises. Uh, the deal between the EU and Turkey in, in 2016 was also uh, the, last, uh, uh, the last bit, let's say, to culminate this uh, absolutely not, not a positive picture secessionist movements, referendums, Brexit did happen. And all of this, uh, coupled with a rise of far-right and anti-foreigner, anti-immigrant sentiment, uh, a complete uh, loss of willingness for further EU enlargement, all of these aspects notwithstanding, when I look at the way how the EU portrays itself and projects itself, and in turn is internalized from the local populations in the region, is still a Pleasantville. Europe is homogeneously emancipated, gender neutral, progressive, environmental friendly, solidaire, uh, cares for peace in the world, uh, has absolutely no problems. This is, and now this picture, the ability of the EU uh, to remain intact all these crises notwithstanding, and to remain intact in a in a region that is what one and one hour and a half uh, plane um, ride from Brussels to Sarajevo, or a two hour plane ride from uh, Brussels to Pristina, this should not be taken lightly. I think from technocrats themselves, and even less so from the academics, because there, right here, is uh, where a lot of these power relations are. Uh, are constitutive to making the EU able to preserve such an image. Mm -hmm. Now, I spent uh, three months uh, looking at Europe Day celebrations in Peru uh, two years ago, and there you also see the same image, right? So the EU is again portrayed as a pleasant deal, but then again, we're talking about a country with which the EU has uh, certain trade agreements and is not so vastly engaged with, right? It has visa liberalization with Peru, but it's not so close to, and it does not have an enlargement uh, package with that. The ability, so I mean, that in and of itself did not uh, hugely surprise me because I have seen the EU being able to do exactly the same, only two hours flight from Brussels. And this is something that we should look further into. And it is not just the ability of the EU to project itself as a pleasant bill. It is the insistence and the calculation of local political elites to continuously portray the EU as this Pleasantville and to continuously render themselves into 
the Balkans, right? right? So when I mentioned before that the main addressee of these dances is the EU itself, it's like with every performance that children in Sarajevo make when they sing, that kids in Tirana make when they paint the city streets, or um, in Europe Day celebrations in Pristina, the EU needs constant reaffirmation that these communities are still the Balkans, but they are trying, right? They are, they are doing their best to become Europeans. And we will make sure that we have yet another program, yet another mission, yet another uh, project to help them achieve that end goal of Europeanization. And in, to that end, Europeanization remains like this idea, this messianic promise, right? It's always to come, it's always in the future, it's never here, it's never present, you can never touch it. Yeah, you can never internalize because it's always Keep somewhere to Keep come, reaching. right? It's, yeah, keep reaching, right? It's like it's like that that episode of South Park, you know. Yes. Randy tries to reach the yeah the cocaine trip. Yeah, it's uh, it's exactly it's exactly the same. Uh, Europeanization, as you put it in the book, is it's not a good force yeah. of itself. It can actually uh, be yeah. used for many. Uh, how shall I put it? A bit dubious practices, and among other really. Yes, exactly. And among yeah. other things, I think what is what really uh, kind of one of the very striking examples is also the way when it when you talk about you know the citizenship and the citizens citizens involvement in the political processes. When we look at uh, you know the chapter on Bosnia and Kosovo and creation of of flags of anthem and how certain these aspects are symbolic aspects of the states to which state is reproduced and state identity is reproduced and certain historical events and cultural events are also kind of remembered and reproduced completely get erased and we have creation these symbols into which the citizens are supposed to fit in eventually so they have to learn how to fit in but they're excluded from those processes. They, they have no saying in, mm-hmm. in choosing the flag or choosing the anthem. Yeah. Well, it's, it's commonly referred to um, uh, also in the, in the academic literature. I mean, I, I see it very often that in the cases of Bosnia-Herzegovina and Kosovo, the EU has been building uh, new member states from scratch, right? So this idea that, you know, there was a year zero, enter the EU, we have new states, right? So, I mean, this logic to begin with erases any potential heritage, whether or not Bosnia and Kosovo were states to begin with. I mean, this is not just whether a state existed in the, you know, in the Westphalian sense in and of itself. This gives the idea that there was nothing basically there. Mm-hmm. Ergo, we created something from scratch as if out of nowhere. And you get this idea a lot in the case of Bosnia-Herzegovina, and especially more so in the case of Kosovo, for obvious reasons. Like, so in both cases, the, EU, the international structures uh, and the EU have uh, issued the call for flags, call for national anthems, you know? And we have, there's a lot of debates around this uh, building neoliberal uh, nation states, right? You, you, treat, you treat the creation of a, of a country as a, uh, yeah, basically as a uh, multinational corporation. You have a couple of stakeholders, you know, whoever makes the, the best bid wins. And in this way, a lot of the processes to create otherwise what are considered the most iconic representations or symbolic representations of a state, a flag, a national anthem, 
they have been created in this uh, completely detached notion of how we saw them created during the processes of nation state formation in 19th century Europe. And that in and of itself maybe for someone is not entirely problematic. So what, there was a call for flags, local Bosnians applied, local Kosovans applied, the best proposal was chosen and you know, voila, you have a flag, voila, you have a national anthem. Again, for some, this may not be problematic in and of itself. Um, I did interview the uh, author of the Kosovo flag himself for the book, a graphic designer by background. And I think if I'm, uh, uh, I will paraphrase it because I don't remember the quote now by heart, but he says something like, the conditions in which the call was issued were very constraining, not only for my uh, national side, they were also constraining my artistic side because it was very clear what kind of a flag you should design. One of the premises underlined in the call is that the flag should represent Kosovo's aspirations for its European future, i.e. it is a future member state of the European Union, make a flag that looks like it, right? The call for flags also um, rules out any possibility, any reference to colors and symbols of the national flags of Albanians and the Serbs. Well, you are left with very few options. Hence, you have a flag that resembles awful lot to the EU. Again, this may not be problematic in and of itself for a lot of people. However, it's now the relationship that these new Kosovars, these new Bosnians have to build with this new flag, right? because the EU keeps rendering Bosnians and Kosovars and the rest of the region as abundantly other, right? This is still not European. But here we're giving you this European flags, this European-like uh, anthems, and in the process, you have to internalize these flags so that you become European as a result, right? So it's not the other way around. Uh, it's not that you... Uh, you can claim some sort of attachment or ownership to the flag and work with it. Mm -hmm. But actually, actually it's, it's the way how you are supposed to change, seemingly you're you supposed to change yourself so that you can feel represented in your own national flag. And this type of exercise is particularly problematic for me, problematic in the sense that it begs deconstruction. It's not problematic that there is a flag like that. Again, for many people, this may not be you know, this may not be so dramatic. That's that's another discussion. But uh, <laughs> yeah, it's again who who the addressee is. And I do this exercise with the students, like in the conflict course. I do. I I show them an image of the Bosnian flag. I show them an image of uh, of the Kosovo flag, and I ask them if they know who this flag uh, mm -hmm. belongs to. I mean, who stated this flag? And most of them know it because of the football games. So that, that is kind of ruining my exercise in class, yeah. But normally, uh, <laughs> it's only when I when I pressure them to think like this, like, yeah, why does it look like the EU flag? I'm like, well, this is what we are going to discuss mm. today. And, you know, it's that, it's that link between this type of power relations, that simulation of a certain democratic process, mm -hmm. that simulation of a certain local agency is what makes it even more problematic, in my opinion, at least, the way how these states are then produced as European states to become somewhere uh, somewhere in the future. Mm -hmm. In the meantime, they 
they will stay as abundantly non-European until we decide otherwise. Exactly. And I think yeah. that's also a very nice opening for the talk about the EU rope. Uh, because as I, I probably yeah. shouldn't be talking about this on the podcast though, but uh, I will do so nevertheless. Uh, because there is a particular way that you write to Europe throughout the book, which is EU uh, in, as capital letters, and then rope as the rest of the Europe is in, you know, small letters. And I'll let you explain that. For me, that was, okay, Europe has become, EU actually has become synonym for Europe. So all those who are not members of the EU are not really Europe, uh, which then links to the you know whole issue of, of uh, modernity and all the, those kind of questions. But in, in my brain, whenever I would stumble upon that Europe written as EU rope, I would read it as I said it, like EU rope. And I think that metaphorically and, and also like the photo of it in my head really kind of fits the whole image of the, this dance between EU and the Western Balkan countries. Because there is, as you said, it, <laughs> Balkans are constantly othered in this process. So there is this membership in the EU that is there and you just have to keep reaching. But at the same time, that keeps you in this position of otherness and Balkanism, and you are kind of freezed. You are on this rope. You have a limited, <laughs> limited maneuvering yeah. space, but you are kind of tied up. No, that, that was actually actually brilliant. I wish I had thought about it, you know, when I was writing the book, because yes, I do write, uh, I, I refer to Europe as in EU capital letters and then rope small letters. And this is also to uh, constantly remind the reader of that ambiguous political and symbolic geography that Europe associates itself with, right? So you cannot really point where it begins, where it ends. And then the EU has sort of gobbled up this, this narrative. So it has made somewhat, I mean, there is an overlap really between the EU and Europe. And I constantly wanted to remind the reader of that. You know, we're not talking about a singular, uh, well-defined static notion of Europe. And as we have also talked in our writings with the Yugoslav Women Collective, it's not just about the symbolic geographies. The borders of Europe have been developed, proliferated, and offshored well beyond borders of Europe. Like Europe ends in Libya for many refugees. It ends in Lebanon and Turkey as well. So it's it's also that ambiguous notion of where really where are the borders of Europe? What what type of imaginations are we talking about? This is how I use it in the book. But then when you commented it like this, it really it really made me think. And I, yeah, I'd, I'd love to talk about it. I'm, I'm very jealous, actually. I did not think about <laughs> this before when I was writing the book because it's, oh, it's, it's grand. So like you, the metaphor of rope there. So the rope as, uh, is actually a, a, a brilliant metaphor to explain the relations or to explain the dependency of countries of the Western Balkans to the, to the EU, right? So if we look at the notion of a rope, like what do we mostly associate it with? The first one is the notion of hope. If you're climbing, if you, if you like to climb mountains, like, like most of us in the region do, you know how important the rope is because somebody, yeah, right? So yeah. like somebody uh, from above can always help you, you know, you can yeah, get back on the rope back, guide you, you feel more secure, you feel you feel hopeful, right? You will reach mm -hmm. the end. That rope is the agreement between the two of you. And in this sense, 
it also is symptomatic to the relations between the countries of the Western Balkans and the EU. Aidan Heyer, for instance, says that uh, the way or the reason why the countries of the Western Balkans are so still so dependent on the EU is because of this notion of hope, right? Mm -hmm. There is still that hope that at one point, one day, they will become member states of the European Union. Hence, this lingering of problematic dependent relationships in between the two. Mm -hmm. And yes, the rope metaphor can also explain the hope. See, it even rhymes, rope and yeah, hope. It does, it does. Right? But then the rope is also used or is also thought of as something that ties you up. You know, you're, mm -hmm. you're, you're kept as a hostage. You're tied up somewhere. Yeah. yeah, it constrains you. And this is also very um, self-explanatory for the way how the EU builds and maintains the relations with the countries of the Western Balkans. Tying them up with the rope, it renders them as incapable of progress. It renders them as Balkans, hence unable, uh, unqualified, unworthy to become European. So we need more intervention. We need more programs for reconciliation. We need to put those Serbs and Albanians to yet another reconciliation program. We need yet another mission to tell them how to do gender rights. Mm -hmm. Because, mm -hmm. and this way, by doing all these projects, we make sure that the rope is still tight, right? They cannot exactly move away, right? Mm -hmm. And then the last one, what to be associated rope with is suicide, right? There is a very interesting Flemish proverb that says you do not talk about rope in the house of somebody who has been hanged, something like that. I apologize for the very lazy translation, right? So it's also a very dangerous item to have because humans can be a bit disbalanced at times. Yes. And it's also a bit of a, you know, we're arriving from the hope, climbing mm -hmm. the mountains to the suicide. And if the pattern of the relations between the EU and the countries of the Western Balkans continue in this sort of continuous othering, lack of clear prospects, what needs to be done, in the context of such young and um, isolated populations, I'm talking especially here in the case of Kosovo, this whole logic of a messianic project of a European integration may turn into a suicidal project as well, because it will, I mean, it's metaphorically, but it will of be course. counterproductive for many mm -hmm. of the countries, right? One example could be the favoring or the, uh, the strengthening of uh, nationalist uh, extremist political parties that may take power and you can further uh, create, uh, I mean, can worsen the conditions for the populations uh, around the region. Mm -hmm. So. To that end, I think the rope is uh, is a great metaphor to to explain what is happening, and I'm really glad you you brought it up. Yeah, there, yeah. there's some poetry in it, as as we already kind of mentioned several times. There is this discourse of othering, of uh, Orientalism again, of Balkanism, and mm -hmm. there is also in this in this kind of production and reproduction of these Im images and imaginings and expectations expectations at the same time there is also kind of a, a very clear message of 
for what there is no place in the pleasant will. Through all these chapters, you are showing in different ways how certain things are put aside, uh, mm -hmm. criticized as non-European or as, as things that can potentially endanger this membership in the EU, EU or, or the Europeanness of the Western Balkans. And uh, based on your empirical material uh, and analysis, there in Europe, there is no place for either socialist or communist heritage, right? And you show that through these preferences to, for, for European aesthetics or Western aesthetics, there is no place for Islam as well, because Europe is yeah. primarily imagined as Christian Europe. But at the same time, uh, a very, very interesting case and beautiful chapter uh, about LGBT activi LGBTQI plus activism in, in, in Kosovo, which also shows a, a certain erasure when it comes to gender, sex, and sexuality before Europe or before EU entered the Western Balkans uh, through its official programs. So would you tell us a bit more about this performance of LGBTQ plus activism uh, in Kosovo and what gets erased in that? Well, before I go to the LGBT activism, LGBT plus activism in Kosovo, just maybe to to paint a broader picture of where is this and how is this contextualized a bit. So, um, the way how the public opinion, for instance, uh, public intellectuals in Kosovo, and I define at length in the book what public mm -hmm. intellectuals is and what is not, but the way how public intellectuals approach the issue of Islam and Islamic radicalization, for instance, is not because it may endanger developmental processes per se. That is not their worry. Mm -hmm. Their worry is that this will derail Kosovo from its European path, that this will ultimately make us un-European, you know, and suddenly we will appear what we fear we are appearing as Muslim-like, as hence patriarchal, backwards, and all the tropes associated uh, with uh, with it, right? In the same way, when I uh, participated in the pride parades in uh, in Pristina as well, a lot of the people, a lot of the um, participants in the parade that I talked to, most of them coming from an urban elite, working primarily with international or local NGOs, uh, mostly coming from the capital. So this should also be stated because mm -hmm. we're not talking about uh, yeah a massive uh, and, and a very uh, heterogeneous demographics here. But within this group, most of them would also uh, point out that they are here, so they are marching, they are uh, going out in the pride parade because this makes the country look good. And by look good, they mean it looks, it makes the country looks more progressive, more emancipated, more European-like, and hence more, I mean, less Muslim-like, less Balkan-like, less backward-like, or what have you. So again, it's about painting a particular aesthetic. It's again, all of these controversial processes in the Skopje 2014, which I talk about in the book, have also been legitimized through these notions, these imaginations, these hallucinations, I would call them, of what Europe is, right? So right. we have had copy-pasting of uh, land, European and Western European landmarks in the city of Skopje. We have had erasure uh, of, or renegotiation, entire renegotiation of socialist heritage, mm -hmm. of Ottoman heritage, again, because Europe, the Pleasantville, does not have a space for anything that is Islamic, for anything that is 
um, uh, cobblestone pavements, uh, for anything that is associated with uh, the brutalist, modernist uh, architecture of socialism. Nobody wants that. This is not the vision of how Scopians or the government in Skopje imagines Europe, and this is how they want Skopje to make its re-entrance as a European city. The same pattern is happening in Tirana. We have a number of controversial processes of privatization, public, uh, private partnerships that are completely changing the historical side of, um, of the capital of Tirana. You have then some sort of a mismatch, uh, you know, uh, uh, catching all type of an aesthetic, you basically put everything together in the, in the sense that whatever new is built will overshadow the uh, communist uh, legacy, the Ottoman legacy, including actually buildings and heritage built during the Italian occupation. All of these processes, right, from denouncing Islam and Islamic radicalization all the way to changing city space in Tirana are legitimized in the name of Europe. This is what makes us European. That's why we need to change it, right? This is also one of the claims that I make. Europeanization is not necessarily, is not in and of itself a force for good. Right. It can be used to uh, set forward, to promote and to undertake entire processes like Skopje 2014, which has been documented to have been a major money laundering uh, process. Mm -hmm in addition to it being problematic for the sociocultural aspects and potential damages that it may have caused. And literature should look a bit closer into the way how Europeanization is taken by local elites, how the EU reverts back, because nowhere in these processes do I see the EU anymore. The EU is oblivious to the way how the notion of Europe or the notion of European integration is used by local political elites to undertake these controversial processes. Well, right? oblivious or turning a blind eye, but yeah. Yeah, well, turning a blind eye, maybe it's a, it's a better word, but like at least it pretends to be oblivious or it completely presents itself as being detached because these are inherently local political matter, uh, matters. We have no, no say in this and we should not interfere into this. And now going back to the LGBT uh, politics and LGBT plus activism in Kosovo, because yeah, as I mentioned, this is given forward as something that makes us more European-like, right? That's why you have had successive heads of state in Kosovo, prime ministers, ministers of European integration, continuously leading the pride parades. When you read the reports, the international reports, uh, the what is it called, Europe Rainbow, the Rainbow Reports and all of that, yeah. it comes, it appears that Kosovo is the, the most homophobic country in an otherwise already homophobic region. And yet it is able to organize all of these parades, again, because it has to it, it has to manufacture the parade as a signifier of its own Europeanness or of its imagined Europeanness. What I find out, however, in the chapter is that, uh, so contrary to, to what, what is portrayed out there, LGBT plus activism has existed way before the encounter of Kosovars with structures of Western European interventionism. Mm -hmm. uh, there are uh, several interviews uh, that I was actually very grateful and humbled to have been able to conduct with uh, senior activists from Kosovo and Serbia that demonstrate of a continuous, uh, well-organized activism, uh, 
primarily lesbian activism that has been existing in the uh, entire uh, federation uh, throughout the entire Yugoslavia, well beyond the wars had even started, right? Now, this type of activism, something that we don't read, at least in the case of Kosovo, you don't read much in the literature about it. The literature pictures as if you know, there were no gays and lesbians in Kosovo. Then the uh, international structures landed in, and suddenly everybody knows about it. And you know, then we start to talk about the rights and the obligations of uh, of the legal infrastructure and state institutions towards the community. Right? When you talk to the senior activists, they actually tell you that they have organized uh, lesbian activism primarily for free, and it was part of the anti-war movement and the literacy movement that has been going on in Kosovo and in Serbia. Proof of that, for the very first time in the book, there are pictures and there are testimonies of the first lesbian wedding celebrated in the former Yugoslavia, which took place between a Kosovo-Albanian and an English celebrated in Novi Sad in August 1996. Now, Luckily, these people were still very much in the game when the international structures landed in the countries of the region. And basically, on all the interviews, you get this narrative that they were a bit perplexed with this new attitude of the international structures because their reaction was as if you don't know what activism is, you don't know what LGBT plus activism is because we are going to show you now, right? As if... Indeed, year zero, again, is starting as far as uh, sexual minority rights is concerned. And that year zero explains many of the processes that had to start as if from scratch. Because, And this is not because they were oblivious to any potential traditions that existed before. No, they were simply rendered as uh, ineffable, backward, uh, useless, uh, did not correspond well with uh, notions of open market and democracy. They were primarily just some mumbo jumbo that happened during socialism, hence no place in the new, in the new imagined societies that they were about to build once they intervened in the countries of the region, right? And you get this narrative uh, very much um, in a very clear light when you talk to senior um, uh, activists, LG, uh, lesbian activists, LGBT activists, uh, anti-war movement activists, you do understand how well organized certain um, dimensions of what is now referred to as civil society has been way before the war. Contrary to that, what you see now in terms of LGBT uh, organizations in Kosovo at least is primarily ones that are funded by international organizations. They are primarily led by gay uh, men subjects or trans men at least. And uh, clearly, there has been a shift. You don't see uh, lesbian activism uh, very much embedded in these debates. I mean, even for the purposes of the, this book, I have struggled a lot to get lesbian activists to talk and to communicate with, because the entire set, the entire structure of um, post-war LGBT movement is primarily organized by uh, gay men. They have also admitted during the interviews multiple times that, you know, in a patriarchal setting such as that, it is far easier still to be a gay man than to be a, uh, yeah, than to be a lesbian. Hence, right. that should explain the, yeah, the, the problems with my research demographics. Mm -hmm. so but at the same time, there is a certain kind of narrowing of the, the spectrum of justice claims that LGBT activism addresses, because as you mentioned, 
the lesbian feminist activism in the pre-war period in Yugoslavia was also focusing on on literacy, on social justice. Uh, so it, it had a wider spam of social justice claims. Mm-hmm. While now it's kind of a corporatized, if that's the word, right? Yeah. Because it, it is mm-hmm. part of the of the of the usual NGOization of of the, yeah. of the human rights and justice claims. And again, you know, as, as you said already, there's this zero hour mm-hmm. uh, when it comes to the matter of, of LGBT activism, but also when it comes to, for example, uh, the celebration of 9th of May in the Bosnia chapter, right? Because the 9th of May is celebrated yeah. as the EU day, as the day of Europe. And, and there's a very, very, speci- very nice illustration there, a story, correct me now, but I'll probably am messing up one of the local political figures who said, well, you know, we actually gave a lot to the day of victory and, uh, over fascism that was celebrated before that as 9th of May. Yeah. Uh, so we were kind of contributing to Europe before yeah. even the EU yeah. landed in the Western Balkans. Yeah. So that, I think that's a, also a very symbolic way of showing how through these performative acts, Europe is kind of, in certain, okay, in certain uh, aspects, reinventing the wheel that already existed. And yeah, that renders the Balkans again as other. At the same time, there is a certain uh, we already touched upon it when we when we talked about you know the the anthem and the flags and the creation of those national symbols. Mm-hmm. But there's also a certain homogenization that is happening through these processes, and that is homogenization of ethnic diversity and religious diversity, which is then again kind of contrary to the whole idea of you know, multiculturalism and democracy that is projected through these uh, EU projects in, in the Western Balkans. So the, the chapter in, in on North Macedonia and the example that I draw from uh, the, yeah, the remaking of Skopje through Skopje 2014 is indeed portrayed as a project that renders Skopje as a mono-ethnic and mono-religious space, right? Mm-hmm. So uh, by rendering invisible, by casting to decay uh, heritage, uh, elements of heritage, structures of heritage, monuments that belong to the Islamic community, to um, uh, to other forms or sects of the Islamic communities in the, in the country. And at the same time, by foregrounding the Christian orthodoxy of the Macedonians as well. So this is not, here Europe is not portrayed as religious-less, Right, mm-hmm. it is just portrayed as uh, uh, so. Christian orthodoxy is still a better version, a better chance to make it to Europe rather than uh, some uh, minarets or uh, elements of the Islamic heritage. In the case of Kosovo, for instance, if I look at the discourse of the public intellectuals, they argue uh, in favor of so their idea of a Pleasantville Europe is this almost French-like um, uh, laicite, right? We're not even talking about secularism here. So it's like this extreme form of um, secularism, laicite. Religion has no place in politics, in uh, state institutions. Hence, that's why we should uh, also get, get rid of all of this. Because there is also not um, uh, a less dangerous substitute in the case of Kosovo. I mean, demographically speaking, Albanians are the overwhelming majority are Muslims. So there is not a um, uh, a second alternative like in the case of Macedonia. In, in the case of North Macedonia, they cast away uh, Islamic um, uh, associations and then foregrounding Christian Orthodox as, you know, 
as something that is still more in line with the social fabric of the Pleasantville uh, that is that is Europe. And again, when I read all of these exercises and the way how the EU talks about these um, homogenization of ethnic diversity, homogenization of uh, religious diversity, or any kind of diversity, indeed. Again, I am always perplexed with this. I, I keep thinking this is an autistic exercise. You know, somebody, like they, they, there is something that is not quite clicking in here. If you see how the, for instance, in the 9th of May, you brought the case of Bosnia and Herzegovina, the way how um, one of the EU ambassadors in Sarajevo went out to celebrate, uh, to congratulate Bosnians on Europe Day by saying that uh, uh, the only way to go to Europe, the only way to become European is to learn how to live with one another, you know, giving this idea of a pleasant world in Europe where everybody lives with, with one another. And I think it's one of the few cases one Bosnian politician makes this uh, claim in immediately as a response to the as a response to the claim of the ambassador, of the EU ambassador, by saying that actually we have been living here for like ever since we can remember, we used to live together. You know, yes, a war did happen and you know, things are not entirely the same now, but we're not strangers to a very natural and uh, organic form of cohabitation exactly. among many different ethnicities, religious communities, philosophical underpinnings and what have you. No, but this idea that you are, as if you are giving the, 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 the Lord's word for the very first time to these people who have never, you know, even tangentially touched any notion of multiculturalism. This is then uh, ties in very much with that discourse of balkanization, with that uh, tied up, you know, the tying up the rope that you still need to remain savages because mm -hmm. we need still to, uh, the economy of intervention still needs to work so that we, uh, we eventually liberate you from all of these processes. And in the same line, I find it hilarious that, for instance, in 2012, EU the EU ambassador goes out in Tirana on a bike and says today is in, uh, International Cycling Day. And uh, let us all be European. Let us cycle more and drive less. This is the only way how you become European. We, haven't, like, we haven't had the bicycle before. <laughs> For, exactly for 50 years during communism bicycle was was the only form of a, a transportation a joy or entertainment for a layman albanian like nobody outside of the uh, of the communist nomenclatura had cars exactly. uh, granted the albanians at the time were using bicycle out of economic impoverishment not because of some you know environmental ideals but giving this like talking about the bicycle as if they have never seen one as if they don't know the wonders of cycling is particularly interesting to say the least and problematic yes. <laughs> again to say the least that begs further deconstruction the book is fascinating like the the examples the analysis and uh, just oh, the, all the threads that one can pick while, while going through through these chapters and also like uh, methodologically we, we haven't gotten into that and but we, we can leave that to the readers um, has having said that um, have we left out anything that you think is particularly important in my opinion the the core argument that I want mm -hmm. to make and I think not just the core argument of what the book shows is where I want further scholars to take this uh, further in understanding processes of Europeanization, not just in the Western Balkans, but also elsewhere. Uh, it's um, that discussion that 
all of these ongoing and lingering crises of the EU, it seems that the way the way the EU works and performs itself in third countries and the way how the EU builds its relations with the governments and populations of these regions is almost completely detached from these multiple crises that the EU is undergoing. In fact, in the countries of the Western Balkans, as was mentioned, Europe is performed and portrayed as the pleasant will. Uh, and it is in these countries where you understand the way how Europe wants to be perceived, how Europe wants to be remembered, and how Europe is trying to make a bit of a conservation of its image for, for the rest of the times, right? And it is in these countries, it is really in the countries of the Western Balkans, potentially in the countries of uh, Eastern European partnership, where you see the existence of a projected Europe that may, ne may have never existed in and of itself outside of you know, nice uh, mission statements or uh, strategies or what have you. It is these places where those mission statements are a bit uh, like taken to be implemented. I oftentimes mention that what we see in the countries of the Western Balkans is basically a projected idea of Europe on steroids. So whatever you can think of, let's multiply them, exaggerate it so that, so that it can make sense to a uh, potential order addressee. The examples of the flags, the example of gender quotas, minority quotas, uh, infused or forced upon certain legislations are testimony of that. All of these are examples of a vision of a Europe on steroids. We have reached the part of the podcast where I am supposed to ask you the most difficult question. And that is about the most recent book you read that has made an impact on you. Well, lately, thanks to the pandemic and thanks to some friends of mine who have great taste in literature, I'm not going to mention names, but they know who they are. I think the trilogy from Agota Christoph is the one that has, um, yeah, one that I will remember for a long, long time to come, uh, both in style and plot, the narrative the way how it was written, and not just because it is a story of a war told by child. I mean, that's certainly an added value, but um, yeah, the whole trilogy is absolutely amazing. It's something that's, yeah, it's, it's, it's a bit of a refresh given that we read most of the time dense academic stuff. Right now I'm reading We Fall Like Children by Jevdet Bayrai, a Kosovo poet based in Mexico. I thought I had lost the talent to read poetry, to be honest, but yeah, there's something reading, something very familiar that pulls you in and you know you start to remember things that you you thought you had permanently forgotten. And again, there is a lot of war and movement and migration narrative in his uh, poetry as well. A very nice read. Oh, great! I will check that out. You know, speaking of poetry, there's actually lots of poetics in 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 your book. So I think uh, I don't know where where that idea that you lost it has come from, but open rope, yes, yeah. absolutely. <laughs> thank you so much for for finding the time for this podcast, and thank you so much for for writing the book. I truly, truly enjoyed reading it, uh, and I also learned a lot. So thank you for this. <laughs> Thank you very much, Lajan. It was an absolute 
pleasure to do this. And it was the first time to talk about the book. So yeah, it's um, well, thank it's you for the privilege to, to be able to do that uh, on your on your podcast. I listen to religiously, as you well know. Well, I'm 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 starting to blush right now. Thank you. <laughs> My name is Lazina Lazic and you've been listening to Opinion Peace Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode and find this podcast useful for your ever-expanding peace imaginations and ponderings, please consider supporting this podcast by subscribing, rating, and reviewing it on Google Podcasts, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or wherever you're getting your podcast. Until next listening.